focus on the joy at the table, channel a dinner party vibe and really give your baby some or your child some viable choices that feel real to them. At the end of the day, the joy and the nutrition matter more than you being like, you have to eat your vegetables and your pasta or try this fish, right? There's a lot of nutrition in peanut butter. They'll be fine. Set the menu, decide that only this amount is available. And your line is, that's all we have for tonight. This is what's on the menu. But mom, I know there's more in the fridge. Just go make me one. It's not on the menu. It's my favorite phrase for picky eaters. It's not on the menu tonight. Maybe we can have some more tomorrow. Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm excited to sit down with Jenny Best, founder of Solid Starts. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've heard me talk about how I share a two-family house with my in-laws. We could probably do a whole episode on that topic alone because I get so many questions about it but I'll stay focused on today's topic. Because we live in the same house, we often share meals together, which also means that at least once a week, I hear my mother-in-law or father-in-law exclaim, he's going to choke as Brooks shoves a fistful of food in his mouth. I calmly remind them that he can handle it and that if anything, he'll probably gag and not choke, but clearly the message hasn't sunk in. And sometimes I think my calmness actually freaks them out more. You'd think they'd be a little more used to this after we did baby led weaning with Hudson and try hard to give Brooks finger food versions of whatever we're eating, but it's just so foreign to them. Jenny helped me understand why our feeding style feels so wild and crazy to Dave's parents. And she has so many nuggets of wisdom about starting solids to share with families. Jenny scoured the internet for helpful information about introducing real food to her six-month-old twins. Her three-year-old was a picky eater, and she wanted to avoid the same situation with her twins. She ended up down the endless Google rabbit hole. Why wasn't there a singular resource for parents to reference when introducing solid foods to their kids? Jenny decided to create that resource for parents one ingredient at a time. Solid Starts helps parents feel confident introducing real food to their littles through a finger food first approach. Parents love having a resource to create a healthy food culture with their families. Thank you so much for being with me this afternoon. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. You have done a lot of interesting things in your career. Can you give us a two minute summary? Goodness. Um, (laughs) Where do we start, right? You know, I have a really interesting background. I was a professional ballerina with the New York City Ballet, uh, you know, a couple decades ago now. And I broke my back and, you know, had a year of bed rest staring at the ceiling, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. 
really fell into public service after that. It was fresh out of 9-11. I really wanted to work for the city and kind of help New York City get back on its feet. Um, so I ended up working in the mayor's office for a while and having a bit of a stint in government and politics. Um, after some really long days and lots of emergencies, having to, you know, kind of disrupt your weekend constantly to go run off to the, the fire of the week, um, I took a few months off and really wanted to just kind of find myself again. I fell in love with food and food anthropology and, um, and farming and growing food and just kind of knowing the story behind our food, the cultural threads, all of that, and then spent uh, a good amount of time working in various food nonprofits around the world from farmers with um, uh, very smallholder farmer plots in East Africa to um, organizations like Slow Food, which really promote the the pleasure of eating and kind of finding that in our in our life again. So, when I had the babies, and I'm a mom of three, but when I had um, my kids, you know, Solid Starts was really full circle for me in a lot of ways. Tell us a little bit more. So, where did the idea for Solid Starts come from, and was it with your first? Was it with your third? You know, Solid Starts has been brewing in my mind for some time. I didn't know it five years ago, but I knew I wanted to do something around healing our relationship with food and figuring out how to kind of curb that before it starts. You look at a lot of Americans in particular, and not many would tell you they have a great relationship with food, whether it's, you know, they're working out too much or they're dieting too much, or they're just kind of in this purest mode of sticking to one diet and not letting themselves vary out or, or they're just picky eaters. Right. And that that's troubling for me. Food can be so can bring so much joy and pleasure to one's life. And I really wanted to figure out a way to prevent picky eating on a mass scale and to, to help parents see that the start of solids and that journey can, um, can be where that, that seed is planted. So, you know, my personal story is that um, my firstborn, Charlie, who is now almost six years old, um, but when, when, you know, when it was time to start solids with him, I did what everyone else did at the time. I went to the store, I bought a pouch, I put it on a spoon, you know, and I started spoon feeding him. He didn't really enjoy that. And, you know, I had built it up. I was so excited to start solids and to start this new adventure. And then it was like, you know, someone had popped my balloon. It was like so deflating. Yeah. Um, your child doesn't want to eat. And um, the reality is it's actually really common. Many babies do not like being spoon fed. And, and, and if I really think about it, not a lot of people like anything coming at their face <laughs> or being put in their mouth without them doing it themselves. You know, why, why would a baby be any different? Um, so, you know, it, it started off kind of badly, truthfully. And then we both, both my child and I were dreading mealtime every time it would come around. And I felt like I had to start using my phone to distract him and, you know, movies and books and all the things just to get him to take one bite and, you know, what slowly started out as sort of a, a stumbling, you know, start to solids became this really stressful and anxiety ridden and fearful um, time in our lives. I think both for my husband and me and, and, and for our son, truthfully, he really did not like coming to the table. He would cry the moment you put him in his high chair. It became a source of stress for him. Mm. And it really spiraled down quickly. He used to be in 
the 90th percentile as a baby, he quickly fell below the first percentile. He just stopped eating entirely mm-hmm. and it even affected his milk feeds as well. So, um, you know, here I am, it's his first birthday. I have never given him a finger food or any real table food because I've just been spoon feeding him, not very successfully. And, you know, I make a big cake and I, I put it out on the table and the grandparents are standing around and everyone's waiting for the cake smash and for the baby to, you know, get all messy with it. And he's just sitting there staring at the cake with this awful look on his face. And I literally ran in the back of the house and started crying because I knew like something had gone wrong. You know, how come my kid wasn't touching the cake? Right. So fast forward a few months and, you know, Charlie's eating just got worse and worse and worse to the point where the doctor really wanted him to be on some sort of feeding pack or nutrition kind of tube style feeding. And I remember just pleading with them saying, please just give me two more weeks. I can turn this around. I can turn this around. So we met with pediatric nutritionists and dietitians and feeding therapists, and basically they all pinpointed the problem to a prolonged exclusive spoon feeding, right? He just never had access to practice self-feeding. He was definitely the kind of kid wired who wanted to be in control at the table. And I wasn't letting him do that. And why? Because I was terrified. I was terrified and I had no idea what I was doing. When we look back at, you know, how much information there is for breastfeeding or milk feeding. I mean, there are entire institutions, some of them government funded, developed to, you know, support that part of parenting. But when it comes to feeding our baby real food, which is arguably scarier, and it's something you end up doing for the rest of your life, there's very little support past, you know, the mom blogs, the dietitian blogs around. So I wanted to explore alternatives to spoon feeding. I wanted to question the traditional route and understand why is it that we do that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And when my twins came along, I knew I had to do something differently because like (laughs) there was no way I was going to deal with three picky eaters in my house. It would be too stressful. So we really started researching it. And I, I soon realized that to do this justice, we needed to amass a team of doctors, of pediatric feeding therapists, of swallowing specialists, of pediatric dietitians and nutritionists and so forth um, to create a platform and dare I say an institution that could be um, helpful worldwide to people who want to introduce real food to their baby from day one. Wow, what a journey. I am feeling the stress and anxiety that you must have felt as you were sitting down to feed your son. I mean, it's must have been so, so hard. And it's not something that just happens, you know, every once in a while, it's not like a blood draw, right. Which we all know is right. It's so frequent and the, the anxiety that must've happened with that. So, um, I'm grateful that this project that solid starts has really grown out of your, your challenges and that you're doing so much to help more parents in your research and exploring sort of the history, as you were just saying, of, of food and enlisting all of these experts, what did you discover? Like, why do we always start with purees or, or why has that been the norm? It's such a good question. And one I wish more people were asking themselves and their doctors, because it turns out there is no reason, <laughs> you know, it, 
before 1920, there was no baby food. There was no special aisle in the grocery store devoted to perfectly thin velvety purees and jars and pouches. It, it literally was a category of food that was invented um, by the founders of, of Gerber and, and others, but that really happened around 1920, 1930. Prior to that, babies were starting solids much later in their life, usually around 11 months old, actually. To us, that seems so late. <laughs> um, but, you know, at 11 months of age, look at what that child is doing. They're, they're mobile. They're able to pick things up with a pincer grasp, pick up small objects and put them in their food. They're absolutely capable of self-feeding. There was no need for, for baby food as, as we know it. Um, but what happened over time is the need for convenience and canning kind of pick up and then refrigeration, all of that. And there was definitely a focus on food safety. You know, home canning wasn't necessarily always mm -hmm. safe, especially if you're working with low acid foods like green beans or something, there was a real risk there. Um, but, you know, it, it was, it was hard <laughs> back then. So, you know, convenience was certainly something that was novel and uh, in demand when, when baby food hit the market. Um, there was also just a real craving for foods that were high in iron and would bring, you know, easy nutrition to infants. And so, uh, you know, we can see how pediatricians got behind processed food as a better option to um, whole foods for, for children. But what happened over time and, you know, candidly, uh, a result of extensive advertising and marketing by a very, very um, well-off industry. It's now almost a $50 billion industry, the baby food industry. What happened over time is that um, parents started feeding their babies earlier and earlier and earlier. So the average age in 1880 of starting solids was 11 months old. By 1950, after aggressive marketing campaigns by major baby food companies, um, the average age fell to four to six weeks of age. So like five weeks old. Wow. You imagine feeding a five-week-old solids. I can't even, but if you ask your parent or their grandparent, they'd be like, yeah, that's that's what the doctor told us to do. And also to give them apple juice. <laughs> Things that we would, we would be like, wait, what? You can't do that. Um, so there was a lot of push to feed your baby earlier. And um, you know, I think that what we're seeing now is really a boomerang. I think that we've, mm -hmm. the medical community now knows that around six months of age is the most optimal time to start solids, both from a nutritional standpoint, but also from, um, a developmental standpoint. It's when a child is able to sit independently to reach and grab and put things in their mouth that you really can see at six months of age, they're ready to eat. They might even grab the potato off your plate, right? So I think when we look back over over the years, what we're seeing is a bit of a, a correction to, to the old way. But fascinatingly, and this like knocked me for a loop when I heard this from our team of researchers and, and feeding therapists, there is actually no evidence-based research. There's no scientific study. There's nothing out there that actually supports spoon feeding as how you should do it. We literally are just doing it because it's what grandma did. That is so fascinating. I remember when we were thinking about starting solids, we had seen friends of ours on, on Instagram, like sharing photos of their daughter, who I think was probably like four or five at the time. 
and she was eating sushi and tasting oysters and was like, they had this incredible palate and we love to cook. And we said, that's, that's what we want. What, like we called them and we said, what do we, what did you do? We need to do what you did. And they did baby led weaning. So that's, that's what we did with my first. My second is a, is a different story. We might get to that later. Um, but in my mind, as I learned a little bit about baby led weaning, I kept thinking, isn't this how people just always fed their, their kids? Like, isn't this what other people did before, before baby food? Um, can you share a little bit about baby led weaning and more, just some more details about it? Because I know not all parents are, are familiar with it. Baby led weaning is just the introduction of solid food by way of finger food. So you're skipping over the stage of what would be purees and spoon feeding in favor of letting the child self feed with um, their fingers or their fists kind of sometimes they just smash food in their mouths. Um, for someone who's just hearing this for the first time, who's not well versed in the landscape of swallowing or how, you know, choking actually works or all of that, it can sound completely crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and in large part, it was a huge rock being thrown in a very still pond of this is how it was always done. And the, you know, in 1970 or 80, the progressive thing to do then was just to make your own baby food, right? Like talk about the reversal and the correction that we're seeing, um, you know, over the last century from, you know, jars being the actual ideal recommended, you know, jars of baby food recommended by your pediatrician as superior to your own cooking to now, you know, this little $200 baby food blender, which is basically a steamer, right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you start to see these really big shifts in how we're feeding. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that baby led weaning is really catching on and a huge trend right now because it does have some pretty, amazing results when we talk about preventing eating, when we talk about advancing the skills needed to eat. It's a fascinating thing I learned from the feeding therapist on our team, which is this, when you feed a baby a puree, whether from a spoon or a pouch or however, the puree is sucked to swallow. So if you imagine you squirted applesauce on your own tongue, just in the middle of the tongue, like how would you actually move that around to get it down? It's a little, it's actually a little challenging. What most people don't know is that the consistency of purees are actually more challenging for babies to deal with than very large pieces of finger food. And that's because a puree does not uh, trigger the chew reflex. So if you put your finger on your baby's gums, they're likely going to press down on it and start munching on it. I think we've all done it like, oh, it's so cute. It's actually a reflex not unlike the doctor tapping your knee to see if your, you know, leg will move. It's a reflex that, that happens. So, um, but purees don't trigger that reflex. So, you know, when we're talking about spoon feeding and purees, we're not actually teaching our babies to eat or to eat safely, which is, what does that mean? It means to learn how to move food around in your mouth, to move it to the side, to munch it up and down, move it back and then swallow. <clears throat> All of that coordination needs to happen before you swallow food. If our babies are learning to suck purees to swallow them, so purees are sucked to swallow, either off the spoon or their finger, however it got into their mouth, you're teaching them to suck to swallow solid food, which is not a safe way of eating. So my hope is that you know institutions like ours and platforms like ours can start educating the general audience on 
a lot of the misconceptions around eating and to hopefully shine some light on how the early introduction of finger food, however you want to call it, whether that's happening at nine months of age or six months of age, but you know, ideally before nine months of age, that the early introduction of finger food actually makes for a safer eater. We really want our babies practicing with real finger food while a lot of the reflexes they have both to protect them from choking, such as the gag reflex and the chew reflexes are all like really in play and really actively triggered by 12 months of age, the protective reflexes start to move further back in the throat, which is to say it's harder for a six month old to choke than it is for a 12 month old. So if you're kicking the can down the road thinking, I don't want to deal with finger food right now. It's too scary. I'm not ready. Whatever it is, you're actually putting your child more at risk as a toddler, which is, you know, a message we're trying to really communicate because most people just have it completely backwards. I wish I had that piece of wisdom in my pocket when I was talking to, it was primarily the grandparents, the grandparents yes. freaked out when we started introducing finger foods at six months and said, we're not doing purees. We're just doing finger foods. And we would give, you know, steamed carrots, or we also would give a steamed piece of steak. Like we, we really embraced um, the whole eat what eat whatever we're eating a philosophy and they were so stressed if you really think about how your uh, grandparents were spoken to about solids marketed to advertised to we were led to believe by massive baby corporations that a baby has to start with a puree and then slowly graduate to these stages. Well, what do those stages do for the company? They prolong the time that you are on their product, you know, tripling the revenue, quadrupling the revenue. You know, I like to talk to our followers about talking to their families because it can be so frustrating that kind of generational differences that happens a lot in different areas of parenting. I'd love to give our grandparents grace because they were so fed with misinformation about infant feeding and swallowing that like literally everything they believe to be true about how a child eats and swallows and what is safe is completely, completely wrong. Well, and as you're pointing out, as they do more research and evidence, the it also changes. Like I remember my sister-in-law had her oldest is what now 14 and my youngest is three and a half, right? So they're pretty far apart. And she was saying how when um, her oldest was, I guess, about a year is when she should introduce peanut butter, right? Mm-hmm. And we were told as soon as you start giving solids, you really should be introducing small amounts of peanut butter because there's new evidence that shows that actually helps with allergies. Can you talk a little bit more about allergies overall and exposure to allergens and and the research that you've seen on that? I can. There was a a, a landmark study called the LEAP study that analyzed um, certain populations uh, in Israel and West Africa and the peanut consumption, right? So why is it that peanut allergy is so low there? And that was, that was the question posed. What the study found is that 
for the kids who were at a high risk of peanut allergy, so they probably had some eczema or family history or some risk factor to put them in that category, the early and frequent introduction of the allergen, in this case peanut, prevented the allergy from developing altogether long-term as a longitudinal study, prevented the allergy from developing altogether by up to 80%, even a little bit more than that, like 81 or 83%. So then the allergy community started extrapolating that to other allergens. You know, how, what does this mean for fish? What does this mean for tree nuts and all that? What we know is that there is a lot of evidence for the early introduction of egg and peanut and some tree nuts. Um, there is not evidence showing that the early introduction of fish or shellfish can prevent fish allergy. In fact, fish allergy tends to develop later in life. So allergies are a little bit strange in that way. But it's, you know, what's also kind of crazy is in the time where like your friend was told to hold off on allergies and, you know, probably her mom, pediatric allergies increased almost about 80% as well. So, you know, we're still learning. And I think that we can get a little bit up in arms about the new method or a change in feeding and all of that. And that is because new information comes every single day to shed a little bit more light on um, the science around all of this that's still unfolding and developing. The information today, and, and I would say the, the, the broadly held recommendation among the you know, best in class uh, allergy institutions is the early and often introduction of allergens. So starting around six months to introduce the whole egg, right? At six months, go for peanut butter, all of that. For those of you listening who are terrified of allergies, I just want you to know that 92% of children do not have any allergies, food allergies. So, you know, I'm in the 8%. My, my son, Charlie, does have food allergies on top of the picky eating. Um, I know that fear. It's real. I've been there. Um, but the, the fear in large part is out of proportion to the statistical likelihood that you'll actually have a child with allergies. So I always suggest to parents just to start small. You don't have to do a teaspoon of peanut butter right away. Um, and in fact, we wouldn't advise that. You could start with just a little schmear on your finger and rub it on their lips, work up to an eighth of a teaspoon, a quarter teaspoon, and then a half a teaspoon and so forth and put one foot in front of the other. You just mentioned how... Charlie went on to become a picky eater. What advice do you have for parents who have picky eaters? How does that change as kids grow? Yeah, picky eating is so hard. I think people who don't have a picky eater often think of it as like just the kid who just wants chicken nuggets. Um, it couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, I would have killed to have him eat a chicken nugget because he would have been getting some protein. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't eat uh, protein. He wouldn't drink milk and he wouldn't eat any vegetables. So we had for a while, a rotation of maybe four foods that he was willing to eat. And that was plain pasta, um, like toast with butter. You know, it's all the like brown starchy foods, right. And like ice cream basically. So, um, it can be really devastating on a family. For those of you with picky eaters, I would say the first thing you have to address is kind of the psychological and social emotional aspect of it, which is this. The child is likely feeling some sort of stress at the table. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we have to do is strip that stress away. 
we have to make it fun again. And this doesn't mean like just cutting cheese in the heart shape, although those little things can help sometimes. It means checking your own anxiety level about this and deciding how you as the caregiver, the parent are showing up to the table. How are you coming to the table? Are you watching every bite? Your child can feel that. So we have to first, we like to say channel a dinner party vibe to really get parents in the right mindset. Clink your glasses, talk about the weather, literally pretend like you're having a dinner party with your child. Stop focusing on how much they're eating or what they're eating. So really finding the joy and removing the stress is a huge component of that. More practically speaking, we have to get our child feeling like they are in control that, you know, it's not someone saying just take another bite, or I know you would love this. If you would just try it, all those Mm -hmm. things, just more pressure, you know, weighing down on them. So in addition to stripping the pressure away and and trying to channel that dinner party vibe and finding some joy at the table, we want to make sure the child feels they have some choices. So If you're just serving pesto pasta and salmon and both of those foods are a no-go for your child, it's really kind of a false choice, right? If you know they don't like it, most picky eaters will actually decide not to eat as opposed to trying something new. Um, They'd rather deal with a hungry belly than the stress of trying something new. So we have to realize that choices are the way through. What does that look like? A picky eater plate, if you can imagine like a a white plate with like five very small choices on it, it's going to be a little bit of that salmon because that's what you're serving tonight. And we want to move to the family meal, a little bit of that pesto pasta because that's what you're serving tonight, but also a safe food, a food that you know your child likes. And this is only for picky eaters. You don't want to do this with babies, but like maybe it's a quarter size peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If that's a safe food for your child, it's not a whole sandwich, but just a little bit to kind of take the pressure off and know there's something on my plate that I can eat and so forth. So, you know, a couple little, little choices and what that gives the child is, Oh, I have some choices here. I can decide if I'm going to eat this or this, and it really helps. So Focus on the joy at the table, channel a dinner party vibe, and really give your baby some or your child some viable choices that feel real to them. So what do you do when they eat the small bit of peanut butter and jelly and then they say, I want more, they don't touch anything else. I want more of this. How can I have more of this? So first you need to decide based on where you are in your journey, your child's weight, how severe the situation is, all of that. You need to decide the menu in advance and how much of that food is going to be available. Mm -hmm. There are days where let's say your child refused breakfast and lunch and now it's dinner and you're really sweating. You're, you're worried they're losing weight. It's not a good situation that might be a night of unlimited peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because at the end of the day, the joy and the nutrition matter more than you being like, you have to eat your vegetables and your pasta or try this fish, right? There's a lot of nutrition in peanut butter. They'll be fine. Um, 
So it's, it really varies by the household and the mm. day. If you've had a banner day and you're like, I can't believe he ate those eggs at breakfast. He never eats eggs. And then I can't believe he drank that whole green smoothie at lunch. It's crazy. He would never touch anything green. That might be a good day to limit the amount of peanut butter and jelly sandwich safe food that's on that plate to just the quarter piece to see if doing so is going to stretch him a little bit or her right into um, other areas areas of the plate. But if you do that, set the menu, decide that only this amount is available and your line is, that's all we have for tonight. This is what's on the menu. But mom, I know there's more in the fridge. Just go make me one. It's not on the menu. It's my favorite phrase for picky eaters. It's not on the menu tonight. Maybe we can have some more tomorrow. So setting some loving boundaries, but being very strategic about when you're going to set mm. those boundaries, I think can be really helpful. That. Yeah, I can see how that would play out and work well. Also, the men the idea of a menu, it sounds more enjoyable than just no, we don't, you can't have that right now, right? Like that exactly. just sounds better. Exactly. Most parents um end up in trouble with, with picky eating because they don't understand that some of their actions are actually making it worse, are very well intentioned. And I've been there. I've made all the mistakes, but, you know, you know, encouraging your child to take one more bite or, or breaking down and saying, well, that's not on the menu. And then you say it two times, but on the third time you give in and go make another peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or your child is losing it at the table and screaming and, you know, having a total tantrum and you're like, whatever, let's just have some chicken nuggets. All those, um, kind of band-aid fixes will build up into your child's mind that they don't have to eat what's served, right? Mm -hmm. So I love healthy, loving boundaries for picky eaters because it's often what was lacking um, in a typically developing child, just some loving boundaries and, and remembering that, you know, you are not a short order cook for your child. And I think we often think, oh, you know, he didn't like that. So I'm going to run to the kitchen and make something else. Um, because I want them to be fed and I want them to like my food and I, I love them so much. And that's all really well-intentioned, but it typically backfires. So the more you're making that second meal or rushing to the kitchen and, you know, cooking up the chicken nuggets because the fish wasn't eaten, whatever it is, the more you are prolonging the like, you know, the likelihood that you'll have um, more severe picky eating down the road. So boundaries can be healthy and also loving at the same time. So I have a boundary question for you. So I have a 15 month old and he is in this phase where he loves to eat. To give you some backstory, we actually started him on purees. So we went, we did not do baby led weaning. Um, when he was about, I want to say probably four months, he was an enormous child. He continues to be, he's three pounds less than his two and a half, like his brother who's two and a half years older than him. So he's just a very big kid. And he was start, he was, he was really hungry. Yeah. He's in this phase where he really only wants to eat off your plate. The same food could yeah. be in front of him, but he <laughs> wants the grown up fork and he wants to be eating it off of anyone else's plate except his own. And I've never seen that before. Is yeah. that like <laughs> totally common? 
It, common? I, yeah. It's totally common. And I'd be surprised if it didn't happen at some point in a household. Um, so honestly, at 15 months of age, you're pretty close to being able to say, oh, okay, you want a big fork? Let's do it. Let's do you want a real plate. Let's do it. Um, and coach them to be careful. Toddlers are often more careful with the plates and glasses that mm-hmm. they don't normally get to touch because it's moms or dads than with their own things. So, you know, I can't guarantee that they're not going to hurl the glass across the room. It might happen. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I would say he's communicating to you and letting you know he's ready to feel part of the club, part of the, part of the big kids club. So, um, you know, a little like graduation ceremony to even moving to a different spot at the table. Maybe it's the place that daddy was sitting. That could be special to help that giving him a a big plate to work with. And, you know, maybe you can, um, put it on like a rubberized, uh, placemat or something to help with the skid, you know, kind of help it stick to the table a little bit more. It's easier for him to scoop up, but I would say it's time to, to do that also about boundaries. I think it's totally appropriate for you to say, no, this is my plate and this is your plate. Cries and has a tantrum. You're going to have to shrug that off because the more you kind of go, oh, my food is your food. And you want to come sit in my lap and eat from my, it's just, it's all so slippery. You know, is it, is it okay for baby to, or your toddler to eat from your lap occasionally? Completely. If you want to share your own plate with him, fine every once in a while. But um, I don't like to do it when the toddler's asking for it. I like to do it like, hey, Max, you want to come eat with me? I see you're having, I see you look a little lonely or you're looking a little sad. Come sit with me and we'll eat dinner together. And it's my decision proactively to initiate that eating together off my plate, as opposed to him having a meltdown and demanding something off my plate. I do think that's just toddlerhood. And mm-hmm. the more um, loving boundaries you can set, the better, especially around around food because it gets to be such a slippery slope. Yeah. He's, he, he uses the adult fork. We've stopped, we've stopped, uh, fighting that one because he's, you're right. It's really interesting. He's actually very good with it. And I was a nervous wreck when he started doing it, thinking he's going to poke his eye out and he is, he's really careful and he is so good at it. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of your advice for your wisdom. You have three kids, you have twins, you have all of the work that you're doing with solid starts. How do you juggle everything on a day-to-day basis? How do you make it all happen? You know, anyone who says they've got that down is lying. I think we're all just trying to find our way through. Um, Look, I I launched a startup in COVID with three kids and soon lost childcare and, you know, was frankly working at like 4.30 in the morning and 10 o'clock at night. And that was just what we did to get through that year. Um, How am I doing? I'm waking up very early. I'm going to bed pretty late. I'd like that to change soon. But, you know, we have caregiver back now for the twins. Um, I feel like we're we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But the only thing I can share is that we can do hard things. Um, I didn't have to launch a startup in a really hard time. It just happened to be the moment when the idea came and it felt like the right time for me. So that kept me going and motivated and really passionate about the work that we do. And in large part, it gave me an outlet to away from my kids at night and to, to communicate with adults 
um, about things that would hopefully make all of our lives easier in parenting. So that was a really nice channel for me to have an outlet to have a community building around that. But, you know, we can do hard things. Parenting is hard. Working with kids is hard. Staying at home is hard. There is no perfect way through this. So um, I will just say now that the kids are older, that it does get easier. The hard gets a little different, right? You start stressing about different things. Like, are they going to be liked in school or, you know, are they hanging out the right people? Um, But you're sleeping more, you're eating better, you're able to, you know, physically take care of yourself better. So, you know, for everyone listening, who's got a zero to 12 month old, like you're in it right now, just know that it's temporary. You will come out on the other side and then you'll probably want another baby. <laughs> I, I love that. I often look at my husband when, you know, we have a three and a half year old, a 15 month old. And when we're having a tough day, I think we're in the thick of it. Like we yes. are in it. There is another side. We yeah. will come out, yes. but we're in it right now. And that's yeah. just the way it is. And, yeah. and, but reframing it in that, that context, sometimes I think just takes the, the sting out of it a little bit. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much for spending time with me, for sharing all of your advice. It's been great chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you for having us. Before you go, I want to tell you about this new show I just discovered called Me Becoming Mom. It's from People Magazine, and editor Zoe Ruderman sits down with famous mamas to hear all about their journeys to motherhood. She talks about everything from trying to conceive for years, surprise pregnancies, IVF, surrogacy, adoption, unexpected home births. Nothing is off limits in these emotional, candid, sometimes heartbreaking, but always heartwarming interviews. You'll hear from mamas like Hoda Kotb, Alyssa Milano, Brooklyn Decker, Candy Burris, and more. I hope you tune in and subscribe to Me Becoming Mom. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.